Um, please be turning in your service sheets to the inside. And you'll see Daniel 12, written there. Um, I've been able to print it this week because it's the shortest chapter in Daniel. And um, so I've added an overview of Daniel to make sure it's not the shortest sermon. Um, You'll see there on the inside of your sheets a summary at the top, um, on the other side of the page from the passage, uh, a summary of Daniel. And I thought it would be good, uh, last time, uh, if you were here when I was preaching on Daniel 11 and 12, you'll have noticed that I kind of just skimmed over Daniel 12, and I thought the Lord's been teaching us so much through Daniel. Uh, that it would be good to, to just come back, do a bit of an overview, and to dwell on the wonderful truths of Daniel 12, and to help us just to drink it in a little bit more. Um, if, you've missed, uh, if you've missed some of the series, um, maybe something to do over the holidays would be to just go back and, and listen to uh, the talks, which are online. Are they online? <laughs> Most of them are online. Um, uh, just because I think the Lord's been teaching us so much, and for me, especially this second half, has been such an extraordinary kind of zooming out. Um, and let me explain that a little bit more with the summary. So, summary of Daniel, here's a quote from Daniel chapter 4, um, which is repeated about four or five times in Daniel uh, 4 and 5. And it's this, the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And that really is the, the summary of the book of Daniel. And actually the whole way Daniel is structured is to lead us towards that sort of pinpoint and to see that that's the turning point. Um, and the person who uttered that was the great king Nebuchadnezzar who had been anti-God and had been proud and set himself up as if he was God, as if he was in control. And then he was humbled to nothing and he realised without God himself he can do nothing. And so he gave himself, he humbled himself, he... Uh, submitted his life to God and became a believer. Very exciting point in Daniel. But even his successor, who continued to reject God up to his dying day, well, he was told this truth, and it was true for him as well, however much he rejected him. I also thought it would be helpful to, to see how Daniel splits into two halves as part of the summary. So, chapters 1 to 6, we got to zoom in to specific episodes from Daniel's life and his actions. And we got to see how he lived in the face of particular pressure points, how he lived as a wise man, confident in God, in a pagan world. And in some ways, it's really interesting to think, in some ways from Daniel to now, there's more continuity. We have more in common with Daniel than any uh, biblical character before Daniel. Because from Daniel, there's this experience of exile, God's people being out of his city, his place, his nation. And even when they went back in, only a few of them did, and it was a very broken picture of what was before, to help them to long for the true city of God, the true presence of God, the true family, nation of God in the new creation. Uh, that we'll experience when Jesus returns. And so now, us living in a world that is secular, that doesn't uh, uh, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, actually we have a lot in common with Daniel. And it's very helpful that Daniel was a civil servant and not, not a professional Bible teacher. He, he had a 
relatively normal job. He went to a Babylonian university and he got a job in Babylon. He didn't have the job of being um, a, a, a Bible teacher, as it were. And so we can really relate to him in that way. So that's chapters 1 to 6. And then chapters 7 to 12 just seem completely weird in comparison. Uh, Daniel 1 to 6, we, you know, they're sort of episodes we could understand, even we didn't live in that culture, we can kind of get our head around it because it was normal historical life. Chapter 7 to 12, it goes crazy. You get all these weird visions, which are called apocalyptic visions. And, uh, I imagine everyone here, perhaps except this Christmas sign, right? no, he's healthy on craft. Um, does, anyone, does anyone not have curtains? So everyone here who has curtains in their room had an apocalyptic moment this morning. When you open the curtains. I never shut them. <laughs> you never shut them? Oh, there we are. Okay. So John, John didn't have an apocalyptic moment this morning. But if anyone has curtains and you open the curtains or the blind, whatever, you had an apocalyptic moment. What was covered was unveiled. You could see. was revealed to you. And that's what we get in these visions. It's like in picture language, because we just wouldn't be able to understand what we saw, we get a glimpse behind the curtain of where things are really real in the heavenly realms, as they're called in the New Testament, where things are really real, where um, we get a vision of what God's doing over thousands of years of history, um, specifically kind of zooming in on 500 years after Daniel, but, but then after that and after that. And we see human kingdoms rise and fall within a cosmic spiritual war. And as we'll get to see in the passage when I pick on someone to read it, um, we'll get a little glimpse of that idea that there are angels and demons behind the big rises and falls of nations and so on. And this, this bit's freaked me out a little bit. I'm, I'm sort of so used to our kind of rationalistic society where we only believe in what we see and what we can touch and what we can test in a lab. Um, but actually it's blown my mind a little bit to see that there's this bigger picture. But I think it's particularly helpful for us as we go through all the trials. And in the midst of all that, you've got this, I think, is a helpful summary someone else had for Daniel 7 to 12. I've read to the end, and we win. I've read to the end, and we win. We get to see all this horrible stuff that's going to happen over history and events that are going to be repeated and horrible people are going to come and, and kill and destroy and persecute God's people. And yet, we read to the end, and the great uh, Son of God who became a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, was given all authority to rule. And he will come and he will call time in the final judgment. And there will be no contest. When he says enough's enough, that's it. It won't be like the great Independence Day battle. You know, there's the new Independence Day films out. I don't know if you've seen it advertised. And I assume there's another cosmic battle between aliens and humans. And you're sort of wondering who's going to win, who's going to win, and sort of just by the skin of their teeth the human beings win but it won't be like that when Jesus says it's time it's time slightly boring end it won't be quite as exciting as an Independence Day film but the joy will be immense yeah now I'm going to pause there and in your tables in discussions maybe joining with others if you're feeling a little bit lonesome um, uh, just discuss what have you learnt from Daniel, what things have particularly struck you? What have you found most helpful? Um, even if you've only caught one or two sermons or none, uh, find out what your 
uh, table of thinking. What have you found most helpful in what you're going through? Um, take five minutes on that. Um, let's, um, let's pray together before Antoinette reads it. Father, we um, thank you for the way that you've been speaking to us over these past um, however many weeks we've been uh, studying, Daniel. Father, we pray that you would... Um, that you would speak to us afresh, that as we uh, dig deeper into this slightly shorter passage, that you would uh, prepare our minds as you prepared Daniel's. Uh, we pray that these words would be as real to us now as they were to him uh, two and a half thousand years ago. And um, we plead with you that we would be ready for the things that you uh, tell us to expect and that we would have our minds fixed on you and on the future. In Jesus' name, Amen. Inside of those service sheets. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress, but a lot has happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who live many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, Roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand towards heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times, and half a time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all those things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, My Lord, what will the outcome of all of this be? He replied, Go your way, Daniel because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Thanks very much. Well, I don't know how you found that, whether you've got your head around it already, but I think possibly the most reassuring verse in there is verse 8. I heard, but I did not understand, so I asked. So Daniel's just heard 
a massive long vision, but chapter 12 is actually the end of a three-chapter long vision from 10 to 12. And in chapter 10, he gets this extraordinary vision of what can only be the pre, the, the Son of God before he took humanity to himself as the Lord Jesus. So it's God the Son, uh, Christ Jesus before he became Jesus, has given him this extraordinary vision along with some other angels. Um, but it seems to be Jesus is, is the one, or rather the pre-incarnate Jesus, that, that Jesus before he was born um, as a man, uh, is the one who's described as the man clothed in linen. Uh, because such an extraordinary description was given of him that then is picked up and used of Jesus in uh, the book of Revelation. And so you've seen this, this, um, this extraordinary vision in chapter 10, and uh, then, it's, then he's had a whole load of history described to him in chapter 11, and then uh, it continues, and, uh, and, and the first half of, of chapter 12 we get. Uh, but then he says, I heard and I did not understand. And so verse 8 continues, he said, he asked, My Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? And the answer to this comes in, in kind of two parts, uh, using the phrase, go your way. Daniel, go your way, uh, being wise, uh, I should say being wise in the knowledge that, perhaps on your sheets it says, being wise in the knowledge that... <coughs> And we've got two points here. Um, because, you see, he says, go your way in verse 9. Go your way, Daniel, because the worlds are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. And then again in verse 13, he says, as for you, go your way till the end. And it made sense to me to split up the two points of the sermon into those things that he, he gets explained. And that'll help us to understand the stuff that comes earlier. Um, so we're going to look at the end and then go back into uh, the beginning bit of the chapter. And the two things that Daniel needs to understand, and this will help you to fill out the gaps in your sheets if you find that helpful, is that suffering and persecution will be a repeated theme. Suffering and persecution will be a repeated theme. And secondly, your future inheritance is what matters. And we'll come back to those uh, those things um, each time. But let's start with point one. Suffering and persecution will be a repeated theme. If you've been here from chapter 7 to, to 11, uh, then you'll know that is very much the case. Uh, the one thing Daniel gets to see is that there's going to be wars uh, going on repeatedly, kingdoms rising and falling, and amidst the periods of peace, there's going to be times of very severe suffering. And then at the end of chapter 11, one of those times of suffering, which was historical, we can actually sort of match up the exact prophecy into uh, historical events, is then expanded upon and made more vague, and you get it sort of exaggerated. And it's picking up on um, the time of a man who was particularly awful to God's people, killed 100,000 of God's people, a man called Antiochus Epiphanes, he was a Greek ruler. And um, it picks up on a time where he was ruling. And then it kind of exaggerates and expands it. And it's the expectation that this might be repeated again and again. And actually Jesus uses the same language as is in chapter 11. Uh, but also here in chapter 12, in verse 11. Do you see verse 11 of chapter 12? Um, 
Daniel is told, from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there'll be 1,290 days. Well, he used that same language of what happened in Antiochus Epiphanes' uh, time, this horrible ruler uh, a couple of hundred years before Jesus. But then Jesus, knowing that that had already happened, picks up on that language and says it's going to happen again when the temple is destroyed. But then he also gives the implication that this kind of thing might repeat itself in theme. And this kind of idea, especially this language of um, 1,290 days, which is also three and a half years, or a time, times, and half a time. Do you see that verse 7? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand, left hand towards heaven. I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for, how long will it last? It will be for a time, times and half a time. Um, this, this language of three and a half years, if you add one time and two times and half a time, that's three and a half years. If you divide up 1,290 days, you get about 390 years. Then in Revelation, you also get 1,260 days mentioned. And then here also you get the 1,335 days. There's going to be all these repetitions of three and a half years. And the point is not that we should think, oh, okay, let's start the clock when things get hard. And then after three and a half years, exactly, they're going to stop. That's not the point. The point is, it's a, it's a way in this apocalyptic language, this sort of vision-type language of describing periods of particularly intense persecution. So when we look at people who are particularly awful, we might use the language of saying he's a bit like Hitler. He's Hitler-esque. And this sort of language of a time, times, and half a time, or uh, 1,290 days, is, like, is, is reminding people, oh, that's what happened when Antiochus Bifli came. The persecution then lasted for that time, so this might repeat itself. Uh, this might repeat itself. And so we're expected that there will be times, and I imagine that the people of Iraq and Syria are feeling that particularly strongly at the moment, when there will be a tense persecution, horrible times. So we're in these, this kind of specific turn vague. And then we get this phrase at the beginning of chapter 12, uh, verse 1, at that time. Now that phrase, at that time, is often used um, to mean uh, in the last days or at the time of the end. So when Jesus uses, there's a a chapter in in Matthew 24 or in uh, Mark 13 where Jesus uses similar apocalyptic language. And when he uses the phrase, at that time, he's often referring to the, the last days or the time at the end when he will come again, when... Uh, the new creation will be brought about when there's final judgment. And it seems here that this is, this is talking about in these last days, in this time of great persecution, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. Okay, it's, if we're not confused already, we're probably going to be even more confused. Who's this great prince, Michael? Uh, what's he doing protecting your people? Again, this is this sort of glimpse behind the curtain. And Michael is described in Revelation as the archangel Michael, the sort of chief angel. And he has the responsibility for protecting God's people. It's like he he holds back the tide of persecution when God says enough and no more. 
And we get little glimpses. There's a sort of slightly more normal glimpse into the heavenly realms of the book of Job. Um, it might be worth just reading Job in response to, to having read Daniel, because in the, in the opening chapter of Job, you get this weird conversation between Satan and God. And the devil comes to God and he says, um, you know that guy Job, the only reason he loves you is because he's got all this stuff. So let me have a go at him and he won't love you anymore. And weirdly, God says, okay, you can do it. But he says, but you don't touch his life. You don't actually harm him. You can get rid of his all the stuff he's got to make him very ill. But you must you must go this far and no further. And it's as if the Archangel Michael has that kind of job that God sends him to make sure the devil can only do what God has allowed in his sovereign plan. I think why would God allow suffering like this? Why would God allow this kind of horrible suffering and persecution? Why does he want it to be a repeated theme? Well, I would have, um, if I'd had time, I would have put these uh, sub-points on the screen, but I haven't. But the, in your, on your service sheets, you'll see point A. Uh, first point there, suffering will refine you. Suffering will refine you. Let's keep reading uh, from verse 9. So Daniel asked, what will the outcome be? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. This uh, idea of the words being rolled up and sealed is not that they can't be seen, but they're preserved. Um, you need to uh, preserve what is given. What, what, when I finish this conversation with you, Daniel, this is it. Uh, that's all you're going to be given, and you need to seal those. And they had a, um, uh, a method in, of preserving God's words in... Um, uh, among the Jewish people which was that they would um, write two copies exactly the same and then they would seal up one to make sure that it could never be changed so that the one that was being read out and you know, was used more frequently if it got damaged well they always had the one that was sealed so it's not that no one gets to see it it's that this is, this is being preserved this is ready this is to be given out and this is what he says verse 10 Many will be purified, made spotless, and refined. And so that point A under, um, under point one is suffering will refine you. Suffering will refine you. And that's what we get in the book of Job, is that God allows Satan to do his worst. Satan thinking that he's going to destabilize Job. But actually all it does is strip away everything Job's got until he realises his only treasure is God himself. And suffering has that effect on us as well. That when, when the things that we value more than God are threatened and taken away, then we get to know whether we really do value God above all things. Maybe some of you are going through particularly hard times at the moment. God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you letting Satan attack me in this way? Why is it so hard? And it's because he's refining you, like, like gold in a crucible. If you've ever seen gold being refined on a YouTube clip, it's, it might be quite interesting to watch it. it. It gets melted down at a very, very high temperature. And as you get this liquid gold, all the nasty stuff floats to the top 
and there's this grime and muck, and then it can be just scraped off, and all you're left with is pure gold. And suffering in the Christian life is described like that. I wonder what's being threatened in your life, and how is it making you respond? Are you allowing others to come in and, and speak God's word to you in those times? Because suffering is meant to be. God allows the devil to cause chaos to wreak havoc because he has us protected, but he wants to refine us. But then also we've kind of looked at this as well. Uh, Point B on your sheets. Suffering will have a clear end. Suffering will end. Just put it in the box there. Suffering will end. And that number, three and a half years, a time, times, and half a time, really it's a very helpful number because it tells us even if we can't work exactly when it starts and when it finishes, it will finish. It's limited. It's not going to go on forever. Seven is the perfect number in uh, this kind of writing. And so it's showing us it's, it's not going to go on forever. There's going to be a cutoff point. It's going to be clearly defined. And somehow when it gets even more specific into the 1,290 days or 1,335 days, these are going to be different time periods, but it will end. God is in control. And Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. He will stop this time of distress. And so, when we're in the midst of suffering and we're thinking, we're asking that question. Do you see the question in, um, uh, in verse uh, 6? The end of verse 6. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? How long? How long is this going to take? When we're asking that question, well, we know that it will end. But also, it's important to, to see the whole picture of the Bible. And one of the last books in the Bible is um, the book of 2 Peter, in which in the midst of all the troubles and persecutions that people are going through, Peter reminds his readers that the Lord's patience in not coming means salvation. That for God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And he is using time, and he is allowing the devil to go to work, because he wants to save more people. I wonder what year it would have been if Jesus had come the year before that and you wouldn't be one of his people. So remember God is gracious in allowing this world to continue even though the devil is described as the prince of this world in the meantime. Well, that leads us on to our second point that our future inheritance is what matters. Our future inheritance is what matters. You see verse 13, that phrase again, as for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Daniel, don't focus on the here and now. Don't focus on all the things that you're desperate to achieve now, as if all your value, all your purpose is is in what you're trying to do here. No, what you do here is valuable. But you've got to have an eternal perspective in order for it to be valuable. 
you've got to see that your future inheritance is what matters. I get to justify all kinds of things as research um, these days, and uh, yesterday I got to justify it as research watching the Millionaire's Holiday Club on uh, uh, BBC iPlayer. Um, it's quite interesting. And um, what was fascinating is it, it was uh, a company that caters for the most expensive and extravagant holidays, kind of minimum price, 10 grand for a week, um, but people spending kind of up to 100 plus grand just for a week's holiday on a luxury yacht and so on. And they're getting an insight into these different people's lives. And most of their clients were people who'd just retired. And they were trying to sort of scramble as much out of life. And they were sort of trying to live the lives that they wished they'd lived in their 20s and 30s. In some ways it was really rather sad. And they were hanging out with people younger than them and partying in all these amazing sort of uh, beautiful desert islands and so on. And, um, and there was one point when one of them uh, was interviewed, uh, Mervyn and Heather, who had worked incredibly hard on their fruit farm in Somerset and earned enough money to go on one luxury holiday a year. And uh, Mervyn said, uh, they were asked, what's important in your lives? And Mervyn said, oh, to stay healthy and happy. It must have been in his 70s. It's not going to last for very long, is it? And Heather said, well, it's important that we're independent, never to have someone else wipe our bottoms or feed us. If we get to that stage, we're going to save the money and just go to Dignitas. Mervyn said, yeah, we're going to cut our losses and go to heaven or hell or whatever it is. And then another lady was asked, what, what's your philosophy of living life to the full? And she said, I have such an amazing, amazing life. And she, I think she, they were sort of calculating it up. She was spending about 100 grand a week uh, over a period of about three months. I mean, so she was in billions uh, in terms of wealth. Um, she said, it would be a crime not to enjoy it. Sometimes I'm jealous of myself. And then she said, in 20 years' time, though, we won't be able to. We're planning for an Armageddon of decrepitude, as happened to our parents. It won't last forever, so we're going to enjoy ourselves with the people we choose to enjoy ourselves. And she was talking about how if you pay a lot of money, you get to hang out with other rich people. Now, it's easy to watch a program like that and feel very judgmental and tough times, isn't it? Um, that's probably one of the main reasons that the uh, program makers make. But these people knew they were going to die. And so they were scrambling in the least prime years of their life what they thought was a kind of heaven on earth and dismissing ideas of, um, of thoughts to the future eternity. And yet we're told here what matters is your eternal inheritance. Because we will rest, we will die. And then at the end of the days, receive our allotted inheritance. And where do we get that? Well, point A on your sheets, where is your name? Where is your name? Verse 1. You see, after that time of distress... And it says, but at that time, your people 
everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Where is your name? Well, here it says it needs to be in the book, and that may just confuse us all the more. But we get more insight into that. Jesus uses that in in Luke to talk about those whose names are written in the book of life, who are trusting in him. And then we get one of the clearest statements, which is there at the bottom, uh, other side of your sheets, Revelation 21, 27. It talks about the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the, that wonderful city that, that comes down from heaven as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. That, that God's people are described as a, as a city, as a bride, sort of extraordinary language we can't get our head around. That it's not a city so much with walls as it's people dwelling in the presence of God. It's going to be amazing. It says, verse 27, nothing impure will ever enter the holy city, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, that phrase, the Lamb's book of life, I think was really explained by um, the last uh, hymn we sang. Um, it's just such a wonderful hymn. If you, if you don't know this, it's worth just pouring over it. It's just full of wonderful biblical truths. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. So it's this idea that there's a judgment seat. Everyone here is described. Everyone uh, who sleeps in the dust of the earth will awake. So both Christian and non-Christian, both believer and unbeliever alike, will be raised. There is resurrection. We believe in the resurrection of the body. But some will be raised to everlasting life, but others to shame and everlasting contempt. And the question is, well, which will I get? Well, before the throne of God, I have a strong or perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, this wonderful verse, Behold him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect sinless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory, and of grace. The Lord Jesus Christ is described as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because he died for us like a lamb was slaughtered in sacrifice. Or to put it more simply, if you happen to have lamb for lunch today, that lamb died for you so that you, as you eat it, could get all the protein and energy that you need to live. And that's only a small picture of what Jesus did for us. That he died for us. Not just to give us some physical sustenance to keep us going for another day. But to pay the penalty for the way that we are shameful or deceitful. You see that verse again, Revelation 21 verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Could you say that about yourself? In and of myself I am totally pure. I have never done anything shameful or even slightly deceitful. so helpful to remember that a perfect eternity would be just ruined with us in it. Yes, we may look better than others, but a perfect eternity would be worse with us in it. And so it's only if we are pure, if we are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, if we are 
washed is in his blood as it's described because his lifeblood died for us so that we could have his lifeblood in us so that we could live forever these are mind blowing concepts but it's so important where is your name written and is it based on something that you've done because if it is well then all we will face is shame and everlasting contempt verse 2 says or is it based on what Jesus has done in which case we have everlasting life and you see what else is said verse 3 those who are wise those who have their names written in the book of life those who are trusting in God and his saving work through Jesus Christ will shine like the brightness of the heavens and then there's this extraordinary phrase Those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. There's an instruction to us as we close. An exhortation to us to, to lead many to righteousness. We're to be wise and invest for the future. And the way we invest for the future predominantly is by, as it said in chapter 11, instructing others and leading others to righteousness. As it says here, how are you involved in that? How are you involved in leading others to righteousness? It's so clear cut, isn't it? Either your name is or isn't in the book of life. So as we walk into a shop this evening, maybe, or a cafe or a pub or whatever it is, the people we meet, are their names written in the book of life or not? As we go to work tomorrow, are the people we meet there? Are their names written in the book of life or not? We need to be thinking, I need to lead them to righteousness. And righteousness isn't just about having a perfect record, although it does mean that. It's about fullness of life in relationship with God. It's not something we need to be embarrassed about or ashamed of. It's something we're excited about. Being in right relationship with the God we were made to know. Having fullness of life in Him. Being able to, to know Him now and then for all eternity. Shining like stars forever and ever. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing. So why wouldn't we want to tell people? And yet, why is it? Does it not? Even now we're probably thinking, I know I should, but I, I'm just not going to. I'm sure I'm not going to tomorrow. It's so hard. I can't do it. But we have such amazing news to share. We bound up to someone on the street today and say... Do you want to know about the most amazing news ever? That God himself became a man to live the life that you failed to live so that you could have eternity with him. You don't need to even join the Millionaire's Holiday Club because there's something so much better to be found in him. And yet what will the response be? Like, no, no, I don't need that. I'm fine on my own. Thank you very much. And what's that? What is that? Well, I think that's where the whole context of Daniel is so helpful. That is spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. That the devil has his angels, his demons, his princes, as they're described in chapter 10 and 11, out there just blinding people's minds. Sometimes we can see it more than others. Sometimes everyone seems so nice, it can't possibly be true, but actually, 
Why do they hate Jesus? Why are they not interesting? They're so nice about everything else. They're not interested in Jesus, the most amazing man who ever lived. Because the prince of this world has blinded their minds, as we're told in the New Testament. So it's a spiritual battle. And part of Daniel being told to go his way is to go his way in prayerfulness. We see Daniel as the most amazing model of constant, daily, consistent prayerfulness. He's not the least bit self-righteous. As soon as he hears of wonderful things God is doing, he's conscious of his own sin and failure, and he confesses his sin. You see that in Daniel chapter 9. It's amazing. He's not a self-righteous man. He's a humble man, but he's a prayerful man because he knows that there is extraordinary spiritual warfare going on. And that's the reason people aren't interested. And maybe we need to just allow that curtain to be drawn back a little bit more and to stop thinking about the methods that we can use and start realising that there's a massive spiritual battle going on. And people, intelligence people's minds are so blinded that, that I could have a conversation with the imam of Stretton Mosque on Tuesday and I was telling him, Isn't it, don't you think it's amazing that God could become that takes humanity to himself and, and live as a man and die to serve us, to be a servant so that we might live and that that would humble us so that we would serve others. Isn't that a wonderful and beautiful message? No, you're so stupid, Alex. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That is utterly ridiculous. And three minutes later... I might need to scrub this from the tape. We can decide that later. Three minutes later, he told me that it was the right thing for Muhammad to do in a state of warfare, that when the plunder was taken from the enemy after his army had won, that that plunder included women slaves, and that it was right for him to command his men to sleep with them, as they sleep with them, have sex with them publicly in front of as their property. It's foolish, it's ridiculous that God would serve us so that we might humble ourselves and serve others, but it's okay to commit rape in a state of war. What is that if that's not spiritual blindness? And yet so often we're used to the devil using the carrot of popularity and easy life that we just forget to pray for our colleagues and realise that their God of this age has blinded their minds such that as they get older and their faces start to droop, the models that they want to follow are Mervyn and Heather on Millionaire Holiday Club and spend their lives parting away looking like OAPs pretending to be 20-year-olds trying to get heaven on earth now before they face everlasting shame and contempt. I think the one thing that Daniel is calling us to do the book of Daniel, as our Lord speaks to us through it, is to be prayerfully dependent on our God and recognise there is a spiritual battle going on. And it's not surprising that Charlotte and Ed come to Streatham a year ago and end up in the worst flat they've ever experienced. That's got another leak and another boiler break as they try and reach into a nation that has been unreached for years and years and years. It's not surprising that as we seek to shamelessly pursue fullness of life in Christ, 
half of us get ill or depressed or anxious or suffer grief through lost loved ones or are just incapacitated by busyness in life. And maybe we should just follow Daniel's example of going our way and that way including consistent praying morning and evening as he was accustomed to do depending on his God knowing that our God is in control but we need him and techniques won't save people only his Holy Spirit opening blind eyes and showing them the wonder the goodness the glory of the Lord Jesus and we can keep telling people we can keep shamelessly pursuing fullness of life in Christ because God is on his throne and we know that the only reason they're rejecting Jesus is because they're spiritually blind and so we can have compassion on them and keep praying. Let's pray, sweet friends. Our Father, thank you so much that you are in control. Thank you that We don't need to be anxious about our situations because as much as the devil might attack us, as much as we might feel and experience that spiritual attack, actually, you have put protections in place and that you are refining us and making us more like the Lord Jesus. And we pray that we would become so like him that we would long to share his goodness with those around us. But please help us first and foremost to be prayerful, to be seeking you above all things. Jesus' name. Amen.